Good morning, everyone. Um, we have a pretty full agenda, so we're going to go ahead and get started. And as folks trickle in from the poster sessions or, or other activities, we'll welcome them to join us. Um, so good morning. I'm Heather Hopwood. I'm a senior technical advisor with USDA's Child Nutrition Programs. Thank you all for joining us today for our panel, ensuring equitable access to halal foods for K-12 and college students, stories from food equity advocates. We're really excited that you're here, and we have a great panel in store for you. Um, before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the Islamic Food and Nutrition Council of America, also known as IFANCA, uh, for coordinating this panel and also for taking a leadership role in this work um, advocating for equitable access to halal foods nationwide to address nutrition and health equity. IFANCA is a nonprofit and globally trusted third-party certifier of halal foods based in Illinois whose mission is to build trust and transparency across the supply chain through oversight, strategic partnerships, and advocacy. When you leave this session, we hope that you'll be familiar with different approaches that individuals and organizations are taking to advocate for food equity for Muslim students. We also hope that you'll leave with a better understanding of the primary barriers to ensuring students' access to halal foods. Awareness, availability, trust, and transparency. And also know how folks working in the nutrition education and behavior community can help address these barriers. We also want to increase awareness of the resources that can be used to increase students' access to halal foods, including opportunities to collaborate with food service professionals, policymakers, researchers, students, independent certification bodies, community organizations, business partners, and halal food champions to improve nutrition security on a national scale. We're gonna cover halal foods from a variety of perspectives. Ridwan Abdul Rashid will share a student's perspective He's a freshman at Loyola University Chicago. He also attended Sullivan High School in Chicago where he helped advocate for expanding access to halal options. Ridwan will share his experience, including the results from a survey conducted among his fellow Muslim students. Also on our panel is Dr. Ann Matthews and she'll share a researcher's perspective. She's a registered dietitian, an associate professor in the food science and human nutrition department at the University of Florida. Since 2015, alongside a multi-state team, Anne has studied food security on college campuses and factors that influence college students' food choices. Anne partnered with the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics to study the prevalence of nutrition insecurity among Muslim college students in the United States. And today she'll share preliminary findings. You all are the first audience to hear them. And also some future initiatives to address nutrition security and access to halal foods among US Muslim college students. Nadim Zafar will share a food service executive's perspective. He is the division president for Chartwell's Higher Education Central Region, a position he's held for the last five years. And has grown to include the northeastern part of the country. Nadim grew up in Qatar and studied at Southeast Missouri State University where he was energized by the hospitality, leadership, and craft of contract dining. He holds degrees in chemistry and hospitality and food management. Nadim has been with Chartwell since 1999 and his division oversees 100 campuses in more than 22 states. 
including one of the first third-party certified halal operations in the U.S. in partnership with Ifanka. Nadim serves on the Minnesota University System Culinology Board, and his priority is people and ensuring they have the opportunity they deserve for further growth and prosperity. Yakutullah Muhammad is a registered dietitian who serves as a member of the Halal Food and Nutrition Security Research Advisory Group that was convened by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics Foundation and AFANCA. They evaluate access to halal foods and food and nutrition security among Muslim college students in the United States. She's also the owner of Nutrition Prescriptions, LLC, a consulting practice that specializes in recipe development and analysis, nutrition education, and women's wellness. Yakutala is also a freelance writer and recipe developer of Halal Consumer Magazine, a nutrition-focused magazine from Ifanka. So a big thank you to Afanka and to all of our panelists for your willingness to share your experiences and expertise today. So you're probably familiar with the term food security, which means having enough food for an active, healthy life. Um, building on and complementing our longstanding efforts to address food security, USDA is expanding our efforts to advance nutrition security which recognizes the multifaceted role that food plays in our lives and means all people have consistent and equitable access to healthy, safe, affordable foods that are essential to, to optimal health and well-being. So it's a more holistic view of nutrition and the multifaceted role that food plays in our lives. It's not just about having enough calories, but the right kind of calories that provide nutrients we need to optimize health and nourish our whole selves, our personal values, our cultural and family traditions, and our faiths. USDA's approach to tackling food and nutrition security aims to recognize the structural inequality, that structural inequalities make it hard for many people to eat healthy and be physical active. And we want to emphasize taking an equity lens to our efforts. So nutrition security for all communities is a USDA priority. We know that disparities in diet-related diseases are rooted in long-standing historical inequities. And so to help tackle these systemic issues, USDA is advancing nutrition security in an equitable way that supports resilient, sustainable food systems for all communities. USDA's efforts support President Biden's directive um, to all federal agencies to pursue comprehensive approaches to advance equity for all including communities that have been historically underserved, marginalized, and adversely affected by persistent poverty and inequality. And in the school meal programs, that means USDA is committed to offering a variety of nutritious, domestically produced food options, including halal foods, through the national school lunch and school breakfast programs. So we know that an alarming rate of food insecurity exists in our educational systems, and you'll hear about some of that from our panelists today. This includes students in K-12 schools and on college campuses. And we know that food insecurity and malnourishment can lead to underdevelopment and underperformance and can also impact students' ability um, to learn, study, and graduate. And this is particularly true among Muslim students seeking halal certified foods, drinks, and other pro products. So during our panel, um, student food access champions and leaders will share their personal stories to empower the next generation to advocate for equitable and authentic access to a variety of certified halal foods in K-12 schools and on college campuses. 
So without further delay, I'll hand it over to Ridwan to share his experience. Good morning, guys. My name is Ridwan Abdul-Rashid. I just finished my freshman year at Loyola University, finally my second year. So yeah, woohoo. Uh, I'm a, we came, I came here in 2016 as a refugee student from Malaysia, and I started working for Rohingya Culture Center as a volunteer. So before I start, I just wanted to know what does halal mean to you guys, if there's no right or wrong answer to those questions. What is halal? Halal is an Arabic word meaning lawfully or permitted. It, it is most often used to refer to foods that are permissible for Muslims to consume. There are clear guidelines for what foods are permissible and which are not permissible. For example, pork and alcohol are not permissible. Animals that are permissible for Muslims to eat m must be slaughtered according to halal guidelines. So we have this specific guidelines that we need to follow to make it halal. Why is halal important? The majority of Muslims observe halal food. Eating non-halal food is a sin and goes against what Muslims believe. Halal is a way to connect with God. So another question, how can Muslim students better communicate the need for halal food? Does anyone work with student populations or have avenues where students might communicate their needs to you? Anyone else? Oh, she didn't hear it. Can you, do you mind repeating it again? We have a microphone here. <laughs> sure, I'm an adjunct in several universities and usually the students use zabiha.com. That's zabiha.com, which is like another word for halal. Uh, that's a website that usually, it's a database that usually has um, halal restaurants, halal um, grocery stores in the area. So back in Southern High School where I started this project, I did a survey because we have about 15% students like that is Muslim student populations at Southern High School in Chicago, Illinois. But we have more CPS like Chicago Public School, which are like K to 12, but there's other population, but my focus was on Southern High School. So how important is how to you, like you guys could see the results up there is very important, 87.9%. So, and do you bring food from home or buy lunch at school? 
like 61.1% say bring lunch from home. First of all, like people out here are going through a lot. Like we have kids who are from low income family. First of all, like kids that are going through a lot, like there's no one gonna prepare them some foods like to bring it to school. Eight hours without food, wow. You bring food from home because you do not like the current halal option at school. 75.8% said yes. When I'm at school, I feel hungry because there's no suitable halal food options. You guys could see always and often, which I would say about 90% or s something. Math, my brain doesn't work as right now, but yeah. Implications of hunger and food insecurity. Food insecurity. It's defined by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, USDA, as a lack of consistent access to enough food for every person in a household to live an active, healthy life. USDA indicates that food insecure people are more likely to suffer from chronic disease such as diabetic, diabetes and high blood pressure. What role can the community play in advocating for supporting students? So we'll just ask you all to think about this question and kind of let it marinate in your brains for a few minutes and we're gonna come back to it with an activity in just a few minutes. With that, I'll pass it to you. Thank you, Ridwan. Okay, thank you, Ridwan. And for you guys in the audience, um, I mean, just imagine Ridwan as a high school student taking this on, reaching out to teachers in his school and you know, having his concerns heard and advocating for his peers. I really admire the work that you've done, Ridwan. Thank you so much. Um, my name is Ann Matthews. I'm a professor at the University of Florida. And what we're gonna talk about today is uh, one of the first um, studies to understand a bit better food security issues among Muslim college students in the United States, as well as their access and perception of access to halal foods on college campuses. Um, again, a thank you to Afanka and to the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics for bringing this issue forward. Uh, before we get too, uh, started too far, I'm going to give you a little bit of background of how this came about and how I came about um, to this group, essentially. So, as Heather mentioned in the introductions, I've been working in college food security um, area for a number of years, looking at Dr. Kel Carla Shelnut, also from the University of Florida, in the back here, but as part of a USDA-supported multi-state research team. And um, as the research team, we've, we've been working really in this area actively since 2014, 2015 as a group, but access based on some very specific concerns our group ignored, as did other researchers throughout this period of time. And so it's been very enlightening for me to participate in this group and in this study, and I really appreciate and um, you know, enjoying the opportunity to grow myself as well as to expand and really bring light to this very important issue. So when we think about food security on college campuses, um, even just at University of Florida, which is a large university, um, when we began the work, the administrators on campus were very hesitant to discuss food insecurity. And when you think about why that might be, 
one, not everyone believed that it was an issue. You know, food insecurity has been, you know, in poverty and, you know, other issues have been studied for many years, but on a college campus, often the perception is that college students come from families that are affluent and that these issues are just not relevant. Administrators may see, you know, students with a car and a scooter, they're driving a BMW, an Audi, you know, things like that on campus. And that's a snapshot of a few people on campus, but it's certainly not representative of the entire campus. So we had some of those issues just at University of Florida, saw that with our colleagues across the country. Um, and then the other issue from a college standpoint that's a little bit different than um, the high school or you know K through 12 experience, at least in a public school setting, there's two different things I think. One, you know, reputation, which I guess at a K through 12 school would also be important. But would you, as a college administrator, want the public to know that you have students that are experiencing food insecurity? Probably not. You know, you're recruiting. You want the top students. All of these things. You want the best food service, not a perception that students are experiencing food insecurity. So we also had a little bit of those, a little bit of pushback and this type of work early on of okay, you know, we know it's important, but we really don't want to we don't want you to publish or they didn't say that, don't worry. Not that extreme, but you know, we don't want to we need to we need to navigate this carefully essentially. So appreciative of that and certainly at UF we then uh, really garnered a huge amount of support and have done a lot of advocacy work on our campus as well as other campuses across the country. When we look at food insecurity, there's been a number of studies, certainly, well, there's been lots of studies in the last uh, 10 years, I would say, across college campuses trying to capture, you know, really what is the, the status, what's the prevalence of food insecurity among college students. And what are issues driving that, and what are some of the solutions to address, address food insecurity? Much of that work, though, has been at a, one single university, which is not representative of all college students. It might be at a very large school, a private school, not necessarily at a community college. So when we think about college students, you have to think very broadly of what that means. Um, our best estimates for numbers, and there's been a few studies that have really tried to, you know, at least survey, sample survey students from multiple uh, colleges at the same time, which is what we'll talk about in a moment. Um, but really food insecurity from most research varies from as low as, you know, five to 10% on a college campus, as high as 70% or more in some, um, some reports. We do believe that it's higher proportionally on community college campuses than traditional four-year college campuses. But as you can see, very relevant for both. So what is different also about college students? So starting with you know, Ridwan's experience at his school, when you think of a college student, so this is an 18-year-old, a 19-year-old, potentially leaving home for the very first time. So they're moving into that, we use the term emerging adults, often in research. That these are, whether they're, and whether they're living at home, moving out, living with friends, even you know, other family members, or moving to campus, or to an apartment near campus, this is a time in their life that they are making food decisions by themselves many times for the first time. They're shopping, they're cooking, they're managing a budget, having to navigate and do all these things without a parent necessarily you know, guiding and, 
and answering questions and helping shopping and all of those things. So college is a really uh, transformative time for many people. And again, as we think about then that then, then keep in mind that the college students today are very different from the college students 30 or 40 years ago. Because higher education has become more accessible in the United States, it's created opportunities for more people to attend college, but also that means then now we have a much more diverse student population as well. At the same time, uh, federal funding and so, you know, financial supports haven't necessarily kept up with that. So when we look at food insecurity across college campuses, there may be a mismatch of where we've had a, a high enrollment, but financial supports haven't kept up with trying to address those issues. We don't have even a, you know, a census necessarily of all Muslims across the United States and certainly not of Muslim college students. Um, but the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding um, has conducted a number of surveys, the last one in 2022, taking on the task of trying to understand some really important social issues, anything from gun violence to food security issues. And so some of the things, um, just to set our reference as we start into this, that I want to think about is one, when we look across populations in the United States and particularly religious groups, um, those that identify as Muslim are typically, we believe, younger in the population. So more likely to be students from kindergarten all the way through college and typically more active in their faith compared to other religious groups currently based on this report. So, so this is a big portion of our population to consider. So when this group convened, um, and Yakutala is part of the advisory board with this project, uh, the Academy and Afanka, you know, got together, you know, bringing this issue forward, what can we do? And the first thing they did, which was wonderful, was create essentially a, you know, expert advisory board and bring together some leaders across the country interested and educated in food security issues, food service issues, educational issues. Um, and so that, as that board was forming, that's when I became involved, essentially. I had done some work with the academy over the years, um, and so brought me in to, to take on the researcher perspective related to food security and college students. So our first major question is just, what's the prevalence of food insecurity? Um, and how can we try to essentially get a snapshot of college students across the country? And then similar to Ridwan's questions then, so food security status first, then really now college students again as they're moving, you know, from living under their family's roof to making their own decisions about food, okay, is, is halal still important as you move and make those decisions? Is it just as important? You know, are you making food decisions based on that? And with that, potentially coupled with food insecurity, how does that influence your ability to access food? So putting those things together. And so as we developed the survey with the advisory board, um, it covers a number of different aspects. And so our survey, included the USDA Adult Food Security Survey Module, which probably many of you know about, um, and, and a few nutri nutrition security questions from the Gretchen Swanson Center at University of Nebraska. 
We also asked questions really molding from the Institute of Social Policy and Understandings uh, previous survey, survey, so just uh, edited them very slightly, if at all, to fit a college campus. We also asked questions about food acquisition and coping strategies. You know, might they be registering for less credits, uh, not buying the textbook for a class, those kinds of things that they might have to make financial decisions about in order to pay for food also, as well as a number of demographic characteristics. So at the point then as we developed the survey and kind of had that set, then you know, much of our discussion and with help from the stakeholders group was how are we gonna disseminate this across the country and try to get perspectives from students across the United States. And so we began to reach out to partners um, across the country asking them would they you know, potentially be interested in working with campus groups to distribute the survey and collect data as well. And so that's what we've done. Um, if you're not familiar with USDA's survey, it's scored from zero to 10. A couple of the questions, just so you're aware, things like I worried whether my food would run out before I had money to buy more, and then the answer was this true, often, sometimes, or never, in the last 12 months or the last 30 days. Another question, in the, did you ever not eat for a whole day because there was not enough money for food? So those are the types of questions in that survey. And then essentially you're categorized as food secure or food insecure, and further is broken down into four different categories that we'll look at. Okay, so this survey, um, as I said, this is the really kind of preliminary results from a survey that we just conducted this spring. So the survey closed the end of May with the end of the spring semester. And for any of you that have done survey research, there's some challenges that come along with it, and this sur survey was no different. So we used uh, partners, colleagues across the country to distribute the survey, as well as the National Muslim Student Association, the Western Muslim Student Association, um, kind of a snowball effect, and also asking anyone that completed the survey, if they know someone, would they forward to them, and also ask them to complete the survey. So we had almost 2,000 people start the survey. We were using Qualtrics uh, software, and for you guys that have used Qualtrics, or if you don't, they have new features now that you can turn on that will help you detect bots, duplicate answers, things like that. So we were not immune, unfortunately, <laughs> to that experience. So that took out um, you know, almost 700 of our surveys that Qualtrics identified as potentially uh, questionable. So what you'll see now in our preliminary results, those have been taken out completely. We then, if you go then from uh, actual people that we thought were eligible for this study, those that were ineligible, those that didn't fully complete this survey, took us down to 842 complete data sets. And so that's what I'll be sharing with you today. Again, we did, you know, do our best to have a sample across the United States. So here are where the respondents are coming from. You can see over 30% are from California, followed by Florida, New York. Those are very large states. You would expect that to happen. Illinois, Texas, Pennsylvania, also well represented in the survey. A little highlights of the demographics of who, per, who completed the survey. Um, and I'll just, I've got boxes around the ones that I wanna highlight first. Um, according to the ISP, the ISPU survey that I mentioned, um, whites would be overrepresented here in this survey. So 
the U.S. Muslim population is extremely diverse, one of the most diverse populations. Taking this all back a step, though, these are college students. So who are college students in the United States? Likely, whites are overrepresented or more represented on a college campus. So how much this truly represents Muslim students across the United States racially, we're not sure and not, we don't have, there's not a data set to compare that to, to know. Um, but one thing to note is for those students that identified as white, they were less likely to be experiencing food insecurity than other races. Similarly, for those that identified as Hispanic, they were more likely to be experiencing food insecurity. And I'll share that with you in a moment. Similar to other surveys of college students, um, being married, having children in the home, um, increases the likelihood that you're experiencing food insecurity. Um, other things here, so in-state students were more likely to be experiencing food insecurity than those from out-of-state or international students. My guess is they're more likely to not have financial resources to be able to travel if they wanted to. They needed to stay home. And then the last line down there, um, GPA, also a lower GPA if they're experiencing food insecurity. And most of our respondents, 85% were undergraduates, but we also had graduate and professional students participate as well. Within our overall sample, based on uh, how they completed the survey, over half would be classified as food insecure. So kind of fitting into you know, some of the representative samples that we saw across the country. But then when you break it down into the four categories, you see that there's you know, a third falling into the very low food security category, which that second question I put up as a sample, you know, that they're skipping meals, they're hungry, to fall into the very low category means that now it's not just affecting the food that you're purchasing or your diet quality, you really are skipping meals, potentially losing weight, you know, that this, this would be a group that meeting their nutrient and energy needs um, is likely not happening if they're following into the very low food security. Okay, so now I'm just gonna take you through some of the responses. So we asked some similar questions to Ridwan of what is the, you know, do you consider halal as you're making food purchases? How important it is to you? And what are some of the barriers on your campus to accessing halal foods? So first, just do you consider whether a food is halal or not? And on each of these, I've divided by food security status, but just into the food secure and food insecure. Just like Ridwan's uh, data, then it is extremely important for most of the respondents. And then when they're making decisions about products and services, how important it is, is it that they're certified halal? It's very important, regardless of food security status, but potentially a bit more important or someone experiencing food insecurity may not be able to take that in, you know, and, it, and when you're balancing all the things that you're making a decision about a food, it may not be able to weigh as heavily if financial burden is a major consideration. And then what about protein foods in particular? There we have equal responses. You know, that having halal certification is extremely important for protein foods in particular. And then how do students then identify? You know, you think about and, you know, thinking about your own college campus, do you have access to halal foods? I'm not sure. You know, as we began this, 
I'm not sure on the University of Florida. I don't know the answer to these questions. So how would students know if there are halal foods there if I don't know? So here, this is not a percent, but number, so they could, they could check more than one, essentially, of what applies. They're shopping at specialty stores, most looking for labels on food packages, asking store employees, the app, the website that you mentioned, um, also, so different ways that they are trying to find out that information. And then, another important question, would you be following a vegan, vegetarian, or pescatarian diet most of the time? Which could be for a variety of reasons, right? But it could be that they would be doing that because of lack of access most often to halal protein foods. So here you see, you know, an almost equal response of many of them, or many of our respondents are following one of these dietary patterns. But when we asked why, you can see differences. And so this was a pull-down question. Right here, they weren't able to fill in the blank, you know, of, of more detailed responses necessarily. But if you look at the food insecure group, um, they're reporting lack of halal protein foods as one of the primary reasons of why they're following a different dietary pattern. So they don't have the option necessarily to make some other decisions. And then meal plans. So skipping ahead a little bit, you know, on a college campus, and we've you know, done a lot of work of trying to uh, address food insecurity across a college campus, meal plans usually come up as the answer, right? If everybody just had a meal plan, food security would not be an issue. Well, not necessarily. That's an that's a easy statement to say across the board. But here you can see 70, you know, 72% of those reporting food insecurity had a meal plan. Meal plans come in a variety of, uh, you know, all access, 24 hours a day, probably not 24 hours a day, dining, you know, restaurants close, the hours that they're open, those are all major issues, especially if you're working a job and attending class, you know, your ability to get to a dining hall during opening, during hours that they're open is an issue that we've learned about for sure. But having a meal plan, on some campuses, a meal plan is optional. On some campuses, a meal plan, it's required to purchase a meal plan. Um, so that can be a factor, and usually meal plans are not cheap. You know, many people, certainly at UF, decide not to buy the meal plan because they think they can cook for themselves on a, on a, on a tighter budget. But so this is something to think about. It's not as simple as meal plans. And then we asked about the university dining hall in particular. Do you have access to foods that meet your religious needs? On a, on, in your university dining, um, and certainly less that were, uh, those experiencing food insecurity reported less consistent access. And then we have some additional information about barriers for accessing needs based on the religious dietary needs. And you can see the most frequently uh, given reason is that the foods were not labeled. So we think of access, cost, but also just information and messaging about the availability of foods may be um, something that we really need to investigate as well. Foods not available, lack of transportation, they cost too much, and also potentially embarrassed to ask. You've left home, you're in a different community, you might be out of your normal social circle of friends and family, and now I might eating a little bit different, my needs are a little bit different, how comfortable am I with my new roommates and friends that I've met asking for something different, a special need for me. 
And then here's just uh, from one of the nutrition security questions. In the last 30 days, I worried that the food I was able to eat would hurt my health and well-being. You can see that dramatically difference um, between those that are experiencing food insecurity. And then remember the GPA was significantly lower with foods, students experiencing food insecurity when we asked how that lack of consistent access affects their ability to learn. Um, then 152 said that they feel hungry during the school day, just like Ridwan was experiencing. Um, time spent traveling home, whether that's, I don't know any more information about that, if they're going home on the weekends, if they are living off campus and getting home, but finding, you know, halal foods, I imagine, with their families and not able to concentrate. So uh, direct consequences on their academic success, we see. We also used uh, a survey, coping strategy survey, to see differences again in are you maybe registering for fewer credits, not buying textbooks, things like that. And we see differences in the use of those coping strategies. So on the right, food insecure are using significantly more coping strategies than food secure students to access foods. So that's just a snapshot and ne the next step in this project um, is a second step that the Academy is leading for you guys that might be members of both organizations, SNEB and the Academy. You saw the calls for research fellows around these issues. So they've just selected a research fellow. The next step will be some qualitative work with dietetics programs around the country to do focus groups and really try to understand this issue and come up with some solutions on individual campuses. Um, and we'll be getting into this data in much more detail as well. And we do have some open-ended questions that we haven't even begun to sort through yet. So some thoughts from the college student um, perspective. So far, one, I mean, obviously, the prevalence of food insecurity is just unacceptable. We knew, and this really um, you know, brings that to life for US Muslim students as well, and absolutely negatively impacts their academic success. Most Muslim students want to consider and do consider whether foods are halal or not when they're making those decisions, and you know, potentially lack of knowledge, lack of information about certification, availability of halal foods on their campus is important for everyone. And it may vary, though, by food security status of how much they can consider that in making daily food decisions. So our next steps, essentially, are diving deeper into the data that we have as well and supporting the, the academy in the next steps. Um, and then really taking back with our partners and respondents and universities that participate in the study and understanding the data and advocating and disseminating this first step. Um, back to our own campuses and beyond. So thank you. And I think we're going to have some discussion. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Matthews. It's really great to have national data to characterize both the problem and the opportunities that we have here, um, especially to policymakers. But before we move on, I have a couple of questions for you and Ridwan. And Ridwan, I'll start with you. I really want to echo um, Anne's kudos to you and your peers for taking the initiative and even collecting survey to characterize the problem that you were facing. So as a high school student, what motivated you and your peers to, to make an effort to change your meal service? <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> first of all, I was like, I'm playing a role model in my community as a Rohingya community. I'm like the first one who went to university 
schools, like, during all this, like, if I don't stand up, who would? Like, for my community? And this is not just for my community, this is for all Muslim people. Like, we have, like, we don't have access to halal food and stuff. So we, like, as a project that we started back in, I was part of Student Voice Committee in Southern High School, and then I talked to Mr. Zapata, his name is, like, he's the president of SBC, and I was like, hey, like, this is not fair to us that we don't have access to halal food. And he was like, yeah, you guys could start a project. And I, I was like, sure, why not? And he was like, you need all this service, this and that. I was like, whoa, okay. And then I set up a meeting with Airmark, like CPS, and collected this data. And then I was like, okay, now this is what I want to do. Like, I want to stand up what we don't have and I want to make a change. So that's what motivated me. Very inspiring, thank you. And Dr. Matthews, the statistics you presented showed that more than 30% of Muslim college students have very low food security, which is shocking. How does that compare to the general population? I'm glad you asked that because I didn't even uh, share the general population. You know, the current reports of across the country for household food insecurity is estimated, you know, between 10 and 12%. So college students in general experiencing food insecurity at a much higher rate than, than U.S. households across the board. But that very low food security where they are experiencing hunger, potentially even losing weight, skipping meals, those kinds of things, that's certainly higher than what we've seen in our multi-state data. It's usually the, the smaller group of the food insecure proportion. So it's very concerning, yeah, yeah. Thank you. So now I'm gonna resurface um, Ridwan's question for you all. So we've heard a student's story and we've heard a researcher's story. It kind of helps us understand the problem. There's a lack of halal foods in school meals um, and, and it's negatively impacting our children. So what actions could you take in the spaces that you work in and live in to help increase access to halal foods for students? And if you want to raise your hand, we can bring you a mic. And there's the question too. Oh. Hi, my name is Tia. I uh, work at the University of the District of Columbia, and um, what came to mind is that our school has a food pantry. And um, so, it is, and it's grown a lot over the past three years. So making um, that, bringing that issue to the volunteers, uh, the student volunteers and the coordinator of the food pantry to just, um, you know, or even a student organization that's Muslim serving within a university to bring that issue to them so we can make an effort to include um, some halal, halal foods um, in the, as part of the, uh, uh, you know, foods they, they allot to uh, the students. Because uh, I think that's overlooked. Like there's a, there's a lot of different um, preferences and needs on campus and allergies and all of that, but um, yeah, thank you. This, just hearing the information about this population and, and the food insecurity was um, eye-opening too. Thank you. Anyone else have any thoughts of actions you might take in the spaces that you work and live in?
Okay, well, you can keep thinking about it. We'll have another opportunity for some input a little bit later in the session. Um, and so now we've heard from a student and a researcher, and we're gonna hear from a food service perspective um, and a nutrition educator. So both Nadim and Yakutala are experienced experts. And as I mentioned earlier, Nadim is a division president at Chartwells, which is a food service management company that operates in more than 300 colleges and universities. So Nadim, I'll turn it over to you to share how your work, work helps increase uh, the availability of halal, halal foods to students. Thanks, Heather, I appreciate it. I just move this slide up. Appreciate you all joining us this afternoon. Um, and, and not going to the premiere of Top Gun next door, so thanks for joining us. <laughs> I think it's critical, you know, as I grew up in Doha, access and equity was not really a concern, right? Wherever I went, I ate at home, halal foods was available. Same experience for Ridwan, and I think all the data and research that Dr. Matthews just presented reinforces the need to be equitable in a safe space for students, whether it be in K through 12, or be in higher education, to feel comfor comfortable in the environment that they're learning. I think nourishing is a, a byproduct of a very important need for a student to be successful in whatever they're trying to achieve, whether education or K through 12. Um, but I think it's our responsibility, regardless if I'm Aramark, Sodexo, Chartwells, three big institutions that compete for your business, whether it be high schools or college universities, but I think my personal initiative, being with Compass for 24 years, is to make sure that we can be educators. I think that's where it all starts. The, the information that Dr. Matthews provided, personal journey of Ridwan, reinforces, as I just said, the education behind the why. I think that's where I, as a executive, as a food service professional, really find the disconnect in the workforce, in our management team, and maybe even our audience to understand why is it important? What awareness can we bring, or I can bring as an individual, to this important topic? We do the same for people with allergens. We do the same for people eating kosher. We do the same for various other needs from a dietary perspective. And we take it so seriously because there's dire consequences if somebody eats peanuts, right? And as a, as a, Muslim following Islam, there's dire consequences if I don't eat halal, right? So I think the importance is awareness, understanding the why behind it, and how can we promote that from the beginning? And I'll get to how we as Compass are doing it, how, what my personal journey is for our team. Access to halal should be equitable. When I say equitable, it means it needs to be the same. As I walk into a cafeteria in one of our dining facilities, it should be available. I don't need to have to single myself out and I eat halal. Somebody goes in the back in the kitchen and provides me a personalized meal. I should feel safe walking in and pick up a tongue, a tongue or a spoon and serve myself to what I would be considering halal. And then the by, how you would do that is good communication and labeling and then going back to education and training. I think these are the gaps that exist across all spectrums, not only a certain company or if you're doing it self-operated. This is, this is the real challenge in, in the marketplace uh, that we need to address and change uh, from a contract food service perspective. How do we go about changing that or building 
uh, a platform to address some of these needs. IFANCA, as Heather introduced them earlier, is a great organization that helps certifying the process of providing halal. It is not only about labeling or procuring halal products, whether it be through a mass producing vendor or your broadline distributor. It's really the entire process from training, mentorship, uh, receiving to production to labeling, uh, and, and that's what they do. And I'll get to what we have done to adopt this kind of process is one of our institution down in the south part of Chicago. Building trust and, and transparency and accountability, that starts with our team. I think that's where, as I said before, is the biggest challenge. We have our workforce that's working at minimum wage at best. We have regionality pockets of where they don't have exposure, like Bismarck, North Dakota, uh, small campus in the, in the middle of a small college town. You know, you have really, really uh, underrepresented, undereducated workforce that don't understand the why. So that education and training is critical. Uh, and what is the accountability in our management process to make sure that uh, their KPIs align <coughs> with halal as they do with providing allergen foods and the safety of, of our students. And then <coughs> involving the student body on campus to help us promote and educate students and faculty and staff on where can you eat halal foods, where is it available. Uh, so it has to be a co comprehensive, cohesive approach on building a platform from a campus to campus or K through 12 to K through 12 site to make it accessible. And then the, uh, the inspections and verifications, really you can't leave us as an entity to police ourselves, right? We have to have verification and authenticity that what you're doing and what you're saying is, is correct. Just like the health department comes and makes sure we are, we are all providing safe food, that's exactly what an entity should do as a third party. Something Ipanka provides, and I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but there's various other ways you can do that to demonstrate to your audience that this is vetted, this is certified, um, and you can trust, trust the process. And then I think the last part is when you, do, when you talk about training and, and certification, who is doing that? Uh, do you have a mechanism that you provide a training platforms for your hourly associates, for your management team, for your staff? internal staff on, on a campus or K through 12 to understand what halal is. Do you certify them at the, at the end of your training so that the supervisors could become the trainers? Um, so it's a, it's a whole ecosystem just like there is currently today for allergen needs, kosher needs, and various other needs uh, from a dietary perspective. I think the last steps for us is to make sure we can scale this. Um, 300 campuses, as Heather men mentioned, if I look at our competition with Sodexo and Aramark, there's considerable platforms, considerable universities and, co and K through 12s that are contracted out. And I, when I say contract, that is a should be a requirement in each of your contracts to demand what, you, what they should be providing to your students as part of the cost, as part of their responsibilities, as part of their KPIs and their contracts. So I think it starts there as you articulating to us in the private industry, that would be me representing that, uh, what is your needs? What are the demands? Surfacing these important data and personal experiences to us so we can identify the, 
the, the process we can establish to make this available at, at the scale of 300 plus campuses and beyond. So f I think the first step is, you know, national access, you know, to the certification process. That certification process will help uh, have training, uh, educate the staff on, on the ground, certify them, identify what the process is, uh, make sure that it is inclusive to not only people practicing uh, eating halal, but everybody else. Um, the policies and guidelines becomes a standard uh, management process including KPIs for our team, and then making sure that uh, the example I'll share here as I, uh, as I invite my colleague Yatakulla up here is well, how do we scale this and what does that example look like? Um, partnering with Efanka at University of Chicago, ranked one of the top institutions globally, we use Muslim Student Associations on campus, we use the Office of Civil Engagement, the Office of uh, uh, Diversity and Inclusion to help start draft, what does this really look like? Not only for halal, but we're doing this for kosher, we're doing this for all the dietary needs, we're doing this for veg vegan and vegetarians. So on, on that campus, they have four dining halls, and four, all four dining halls represent exactly the same. You have access to a halal station, you have access to kosher stations, you have access to uh, allergen-free stations on all four dining halls. And that's what equity really means. I don't have to specifically, as a Muslim, go to a certain place, a certain dining hall, a certain location just to find halal foods. Using Ifanka as a certifying body on campus, we were able to make sure all of our vendors that were providing halal products to us had the right certifications. We're following the guidelines of what uh, the religion preaches in terms of what is acceptable and then launch into training of the process. So as those products came into the back dock, how did you handle it? How did you store it? How did you process it? Who was checking the, uh, the process system throughout each one of those steps where there can be cross-contamination. There could be an individual who doesn't understand, hey, if I'm serving pork here and halal here and I use the same tongue, what does that mean? Uh, and then there's the, the annual process of coming and checking us and auditing us and making sure we are doing what we have promised our audience to do. And once the Muslim students weighed in and evaluated the process and looked at what Efanka did, only then were we certified as a entity that is serving halal food. Now, I, on our campuses, many other institutions are serving, ha serving halal products and making halal foods available. But there's only one institution across the 300 campus that is certified. And I think it's provided a lot of reassurance to our Muslim po population that we have somebody that is providing checks and balances and training our individuals and retraining them on an annual basis to do it the right way. And th I think that brings me to uh, kind of what my goal is to make sure I can take Ifanka and scale that model across all of our 300 campuses. I know they're eager body that's doing great work across the global uh, enterprise uh, supporting many other initiatives, but this is going to be, you know, my personal initiative, also our company's personal in initiative to take that certification forward, provide the training and learning, um, and make sure access is available. With that, I'll turn it back to you, Heather. Thank you, Nadim. You mentioned some opportunities around nutrition education and training, which is the perfect segue into our next speaker, Amyakutala Muhammad.
who has worked extensively in this space as a dietitian and nutrition educator and member of a, the Muslim community. So we'll turn it over to you, Yukutala. Awesome. Good morning, Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Thank you. Greetings. Uh, thanks for being here today. All right. Um, so yeah, uh, my name is Yakutala Ibrahim Muhammad. I'm a registered dietitian uh, with the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and past past chair of the Religion Mig. Um, I have uh, some of my members here. Tia. Hey, remember? All right. Awesome. Um, and uh, member uh, Sarah El Nakab uh, here today. So thank you all for joining us. Um, I'm actually gonna present a community perspective. Um, so I think, um, and, and working with IFANCA um, as a co community uh, collaborator and a lot of other, um, I guess, players in the field, uh, we really wanna bring uh, light to some of the main components. So uh, highlighting, is your halal my halal, right? Um, so in our various communities, we have kind of, it's, it's nuanced. Um, but we really want to look at the importance of uh, nutrition education. We want to look at the importance of having uh, across the board a clear understanding of the importance of the guidelines, the standardization, um, very clear implementation on the importance of the guidelines related to certification for halal. We also want to make sure that we look at uh, halal as a uh, simplified quality uh, management system, right? Um, so from the onset, we're going into this thinking, hey, we can incorporate halal into our HACCP program. Uh, we can incorporate it. It's not a pie in the sky idea. It's very tangible. It's something we can access. Um, and looking at uh, making sure that we also have clear oversight, uh, and Nadim uh, alluded to that. Um, the key being very clear guidelines, very clear uh, oversight and training Right? So we had a lot of questions on how to make that uh, a reality. Looking at community perception and understanding of what the expectation of halal is um, of the communities that you are providing halal to. And it's not just to say, okay, yes, we're Muslim, uh, we need halal, but when you make it available to Muslims across the board, then everyone else benefits too because it's not just isolated to Muslims, everyone now has access to it. Right? Um, so looking at that, uh, making sure that, the, again, the standards and guidelines are very well known. You can access them. Anyone can pull from them. Um, and why is oversight so important to make sure that we're actually following the guidelines in place, right? Um, and then looking also uh, on the impacts of, you know, food insecurity um, or the choice to select other options altogether. And Anne spoke about that uh, in her research. Um, also wanted to talk a little bit uh, about a case study specifically in Atlanta, um, and it's working with the Muhammad Schools of Atlanta. It's a case study. So what's very interesting is we talked a lot about um, the college food service perspective, uh, the K through 12 public school perspective, uh, but we also want to make sure that we include a voice uh, from private schools. So throughout the United States, we have a lot of private schools, um, private Islamic schools. We also have charter schools. Um, and looking at what, what does the logistics look around that, right? What does it look like? Um, so working with the Muhammad schools, 
um, really looking at their consultative board and how they make decisions in a private school, an Islamic private school setting, uh, what are some of the things that they're actually considering, right? Um, what are things that are important to them when you talk about taking the pulse of the community, uh, what's important? Uh, it's a very close-knit community, right? So the Muhammad Schools is in Atlanta, but they also have branches in Chicago and New York and out in California, right? Um, so it's very, when they talk about halal certification, uh, it becomes a point in the community, uh, make sure we know uh, who is certifying halal, do we trust them, do we know where the food is sourced from, right? Can we put hands on it? Can we visit the farm and see exactly what they're doing? You see, can we track on exactly how they're slaughtering? Um, and then the board makes decisions based on um, being comfortable with that process, right? Um, so a lot of it, you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, um, how do we bring this certification, uh, halal certification into view where they actually have access to it? You see what I'm saying? As far as you know, the toolkits, the resources, uh, the education that they can actually also use, right? So it's not just you know, food service and uh, you know, college campuses and K through 12 public schools, but how do private schools also um, access that information? <coughs> Going back, and I think the biggest question is making sure how do we understand and build trust around halal? How do we get everybody on the same page, right? Um, and make it accessible to everyone. Um, and, and looking uh, at Christine and, and Christine Cliff's story, um, a few points, and this is specifically uh, in the field, um, and her story is out of Illinois. Um, she's food service uh, director uh, for Illinois uh, schools, and she has 55 schools in her district. Um, so she had a lot of questions specifically related uh, to the state bill legislation that came out and said, hey, we're gonna make sure that we offer halal and kosher foods to all of our students. Um, and she came back with several questions. Um, so a, a lot of her questions, I'm just gonna kind of highlight some of her questions for consideration um, as we kind of work through how we answer uh, questions and make information available to the community. Um, but some of her questions really looked at uh, how do we identify um, halal certified foods and get them in rotation within our school district, right? So it goes back again to identifying specific guidelines, of course our implementation, and then oversight. But specifically, uh, her question, uh, looking at the overview is not just how do I provide it, how do we stay in compliance, but how do we afford it? So there are funding issues as well, right? How do we make sure that this fits in to USDA requirements, right? Because it's still part of the National School Lunch Program. Um, and specifically, can we use halal meal options um, that are considered, say, third-party vendors, right? So looking at how do we not only source it, right? Is there a list of halal certified vendors that we can pick and choose from? Um, as we procure the foods, and what do we currently have on rotation that is already halal certified, and how can we build up on it, right? Um, also, how should her school district um, handle sourcing and staff training, like specifically? Are there resources out there for that? Um, are, are there other uh, schools that are already doing it, and how can we use their resources? So the beautiful thing about this is uh, you don't have to go at it alone. Right, there are mentors in the field that you can reach out to um, and you can ask, uh, and one of them, of course, being Nadine. Um, so really identifying program resources currently used and make sure that you get access to them, 
Um, so one, one, I guess one of my questions would uh, be to Nadim, and currently in his work, um, what type of help could we offer Christine um, in addressing her concerns around offering halal foods in her school districts? Thanks, Yatakula. I, 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 being in Chicago, I think she should just reach out to me, right? <laughs> I agree. But I, I think the platform and the combination of what we've been able to do at University of Chicago is, is a great starting point for everybody to see how an inclusive environment should really work because it's hitting all the senses. It's using a certification body like Ifanka. It's uh, verifying uh, what we are doing through our Muslim Student Organization, Office of Civic Engagement, Office of Equity and Inclusion, is delivering all the aspects for a diverse audience. Um, but I think the starting point is challenging, you know, your your provider or your food service team on campus, whether it be contract or not contracted, on visibility of access. Right. I, I think to your point, reaching out to the experts, finding the experts in the environment. And knowing if Anka is also based in Chicago, I think that's an easy one for Christine, is use the resources in the field to help guide your process. Absolutely. That's, that, that's awesome. Thank you for that. Um, there, there's, uh, did you want to do the questions? or? Yeah, I'm happy to ask um, you and Nadine some questions for sure. I'm actually going to highlight just a few resources. So. Uh, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, uh, as some of you may know, uh, we have the Religion MIG. So the Religion MIG is uh, essentially uh, our, our Muslim, uh, Christian, and Jewish uh, dietetic professionals, um, and this is one of our member interest groups. And basically, uh, we have resources specifically uh, around nutrition and providing resources uh, related to halal certification or halal meals. And we worked with IFANCA on putting together a toolkit. Now, this toolkit, we initially started this, uh, what was this, back in 2013, 2014. Um, so it has evolved, um, and we're actually working on uh, updating it. So we've been working with the Academy on updating it. Essentially, it really looks at halal certified product, uh, a halal certified product locator uh, that was developed by IFANCA, which is uh, a great resource. Halal Shopper's Guide, a food service kit, and then a Halal product uh, database uh, where you can actually uh, search uh, Halal certified um, products, um, foods and such. Another, um, I guess, resource that I wanted to share uh, with you since we're talking about resources in education um, is looking at uh, the IFANCA the website. So they have an actual article that um, kind of gets into more information that focuses on Halal and Healthy on the Go. Um, and then they also have a product locator. Uh, their product locator is actually housed on the website, um, so you could actually go to that. Um, and it's also in their Halal Consumer Magazine. So it really kind of gets into what's involved uh, with the certification and making sure that the certification process is simplified and understood by all. Um, and then also looking at the academy uh, resources, one of them uh, being uh, the toolkit from RMIG. So really identifying uh, mentors in a community, uh, resources, and making sure that the people who need to know have access to it. Um, so I think that is what I wanted to share today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so I do have a couple of... <laughs> I do have a couple of questions for you and Nadeem. Um, so Nadim, what advice do you have for operators who are having a difficult time procuring halal foods, either due to limited options or cost concerns? 
Thanks, Heather. Um, for, for individuals that are having a hard time finding resources, I think you have to look at big GPOs, and there's a group purchasing, uh, purchasing organizations out there that easily you can find online that are helping identify and making access available for, for halal food. So one of the biggest vendors being Cisco, US Foods, they all have halal you know, skew items on their mugs, manage order guides that are available. So I think the starting point is, where are you, you buying it from, right? If you don't have access to it, you can easily find a list of group purchasing organizations that have halal uh, uh, identified streamlines. The next step is, how do you verify if that is a certifying, uh, uh, certified place that they're purchasing from and s stocking on the mug? And I think that's where you can use big companies like us and Ifanka to verify that what your GPO or group purchasing organization is telling you is actually a certified uh, location that they're buying from. So I think that's the starting point to use big organizations, big. Uh, they are all over the United States. They have great distribution networks. Uh, I can promise you they can get to any spot, uh, regardless of how sm small or how big your institution is. So I'd say that's the starting point. What is part B of your question? Well, for is there limited options or yeah. um, You should not find any limited options. I think it's become so prevalent in our marketplace. It's available readily. And the cost is, I think, a myth. Um, for my expertise, the cost per pound for halal chicken is about the same, if not in some places cheaper, than non-halal chicken. Beef might be a little bit more expensive, but from a chicken perspective, uh, I'm just talking about protein. It's comparable. And of all the other halal products that you're looking from certified, they're all very comparable. So the cost from where today, where we stand today, is very comparable to all the others. So. Um, now, what you're getting subsidized for, for some high K through 12 and some you know, state institutions, I think the cost is relevant to the entire program you're providing. I think that's the challenge on how do you provide a full comprehensive meal, including halal, and that within where inflation is, that's a, I think a, 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 a tough situation across many K through 12 schools. So for anybody who's in the audience or maybe watching a recording of this session who wants to get started, maybe they're just wondering, hmm, I wonder if my student body has a need for halal foods. What are some first steps that you'd recommend just to get started? I would recommend, like I said before, feeling the pulse of the community, right? So really looking at the importance of focus groups. Um, looking at the importance of putting out surveys, whether they are you know, hard, hard copies or sending it via email, um, and then looking at community engagement ongoing, right, at, throughout the process. And then what would you say, how, how can schools know that they're meeting families and students' expectations, you know, over time, like what, what would that look like? Uh, I would assess and reassess at the beginning, like throughout the process, like how do you know, like clear, you know, expectations, what are the expectations, mm -hmm. right, and then you would, be able to identify them and then determine whether or not you're meeting them. Yeah. And Nadim, I know you've mentioned the University of Chicago as an example a couple of times. What, how did you all draw student input to inform what you did at the University of Chicago? When we embarked on that contract two years ago, we had MSA, Muslim Student Associations, at our side vetting uh, in our entire supply chain, you know, challenging Ifanka on the certification process 
making sure we ha they had visibility or training, more importantly to, the to our customer-facing labeling and communication on when I walked up the station, how do I know this is certified, not only from the procurement perspective, but also who's governing this process from an Ifanka perspective. Um, but there were pretty healthy dialogues, and more recently as the student graduate and more students come into their organizations, we're having to continually go through that process on a quarterly basis, annual basis to re-educate and re-educate our students on what our process is and making sure the process is intact. And as we go through turnover on our team, we demonstrate our training process to make sure there is no gaps. Um, so I think it's, it's a e ecosystem that never just, you do it once and it's gone away. You have to be invested uh, and vested for the duration of your organization regardless of what company or self-op operation you have, this is just like doing, making allergen meals friendly available. Right? It's, it's exactly the same process. Allergens are at the rise, they're not gonna go away. Muslim populations at the rise, it's not gonna decrease. Right? Great, thank you so much. So now we can open it up um, for a discussion with you all. We welcome any thoughts that you've had throughout this session about actions that you're interested in taking in the spaces that you work. Um, for any of you who work in K-12 or university dining, um, we'd be interested to hear your experiences offering halal foods, any challenges you faced and how you overcame those, um, or any questions that you might have for our panelists. Yeah. Here, I'll bring you a mic. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I can take a stab at that. I think that's a great question. Thanks for sharing your personal experience. I, I, I think the first step is making sure you're voicing your needs to the appropriate authorities on campus or K through 12 or in the community that you live, right? I think as a higher education, the Muslim Student Asso Association will voice their concerns, kind of what Ridwan talked about, brought it to the president of the institution, uh, go to the decision maker to say, this is what our needs are as a community. And then I say, why isn't everybody reaching out to big corporations and organizations like us and Ifanka to help set up and establish a process um, and use the experts, just like every institution uses the experts for finance, for 
design and construction, for architecture. They are the best in the industry to help guide the same conversation and same process. So I say the first thing is making sure the person who's a decision maker in the community, on a campus, know what the needs are of your community. I think that's where the starting point. Voice your concern, just like Ridwan did, right? And then he took matters in his own hand, but I think uh, you have to press the agenda where they come back to you with the right timeline to say, here's, here's, what, here's how I'm gonna address your concerns and here's what the outcome looks like. Anybody else wants to add? I'll just build on that. I think in smaller communities or campuses maybe that don't have an MSA or a, you know, a clear venue for voicing concerns and advocacy issues like that, then I think it's the rest of our responsibilities. I am not Muslim, but it's certainly my responsibility and my, uh, you know, in my interest to serve and support all students. So I think from the teacher, faculty, uh, staff side at a school or a community also just uh, listening, asking, paying attention, which you know clearly I had not paid attention to all, all aspects of food access needs myself. So you know taking a step back as a student, maybe finding an advisor, someone that you trust to just start the conversation and that person may be able to kind of connect you to other administrators or someone that can can bring the voice forward. I think it's also going back to the nutrition education component, right? So students knowing, hey, when I come to the academy, we have RMIG, or you're getting started in your career and you know, oh, IFANCA's out there. You know, everyone in this room knows, but the people outside of the room doesn't know. So make sure that you take this information back to your community. I think that's a, a huge piece of it. That's like part of the missing piece. Um, like Nadine said, I mean, you guys are benchmark leaders, right? Um, we know this, but not everyone knows this. So I think that that sharing um, of that information is key. Like point them in the right direction, right? Just get them started. What other questions do you all have for our panelists? Don't be shy. <laughs> or any other experiences you'd like to share? Um, has um, Chartwell or Ifanka been successful in bringing halal food to middle schools? Uh, we have not partnered with Ifanka for K-12 or middle school, but I do know in the Chicago area and other states that Chartwell's is providing service. We've been successful to provide halal options, but we've not, as I said, embarked on our partnership beyond University of Chicago as a certifying process. Has there been any efforts in South Florida that you're aware of? I'm not sure of South Florida, but I can find out. Okay, thank yeah. you. Yeah, I can speak about that. Hi, my name is Amelia Kelleher, and I work with IFANCA um, as the Food and Health Equity Program Coordinator, and I live in Portland, Maine, where there is, to the question that was posed, like a a small but growing um, Muslim immigrant population. And so the, there's three K through 12 districts there that are really working um, to bring halal foods to students. And some of the food service directors have already started that work, but they yeah, reached out to us because they really care about building that trust with students. And um, I think also some of our panelists spoke to, like there are different standards around what halal is. And so 
they just really want to make sure that like everyone feels comfortable around this program and that's where the oversight um, comes in. But I think it's inspiring to see a state like Maine that's historically been a very white state that like is taking this issue very seriously and um, I hope that that would be a model for other states going forward. I, I wanted to also mention uh, or bring up, it came to me uh, as Tia was speaking um, and also as Anne was speaking um, about the results of the survey and how the results overwhelmingly came from white students or you, you had a, a larger Through response. A half, about half. About half, half right. Um, and, and actually extending uh, or reopening the survey uh, to include HBCUs. That would be a very interesting, um, you know, get response uh, from that population as well. Um, I, I think, is UDC uh, HBCU? Exactly. Um, and, and then uh, as part of our uh, ad advisory uh, committee, um, you know, representation from like Howard and, you know, others like Morgan State, you know, Fisk, Xavier, like those, um, and, and just making sure that, that we have a nice, uh, robust, uh, you know, pool to represent. Absolutely. And certainly serving on the, on the board, those were attempts that we made um, and have already begin, been, begin discussing those kinds of things um, and trying to find new partners so that we can continue to, uh, you know, show the needs and really understand the issue a bit more. So thank you. Yes, actually, so in addition to um, being adjunct, I'm also a teacher for um, middle school. I teach science, and I'm in contact with, um, there's, there's an M not the MSA in the college campuses, there's an, a nonprofit MSA for middle school students because in the area where I teach, there are not, I teach an Islamic school, um, but in the area where I teach, there are very few Islamic middle schools so most of our students that graduate, they go, they go on to um, public schools that are not Islamic, so they end up eating non-halal meat. They're not independent, you know, so, and their parents don't wanna make it hard for them. So I was thinking to reach out to the, the founder of the MSA um, because she was actually successful in implementing other needs for the Muslim students, like getting, uh, aid the uh, Muslim holiday off in the public schools. So I think that connecting her with Nadim would be a good idea. Yeah. Any other questions for our panelists? Hi, I was just curious about uh, the infrastructure of some of the school systems and how easy or difficult it is to try to implement some of these things. Like, have you all found any uh, differences between, say, the public school system versus the charter schools, um, parochial schools? Like, what's been your experience with that, if you've, if you've had any? I've only had experience with the private schools. Um, and, and the private, particular private schools that I work with, um, they're not currently part of the USDA uh, National School Lunch Program. Um, so they're private, so they're in the process of, um, but they're really looking at um, kind of on the ground, how do we operate from here until we can, I guess, meet that benchmark. Um, and then also uh, looking at uh, the fact that the facility has to be 
uh, US, uh, USDA um, in order to uh, do the certification process, correct? From my perspective, no real challenges from a higher education perspective, right? I, as Dr. Matthew said, it's, I think, from dean of students to student, uh, student affairs to equity, they all want to do the right thing and make this accessible. A lot of times, I think process and miseducation or misinformation gets in the way of, you know, I, a student affairs professional found out that this student wants something taking it to the provider or taking it to the self-op individual and they, that they just do not know where and how to get the process done. So I don't think from an education perspective there's ever any uh, hesitation or challenges. It's, uh, it's, it's really the, the misinformation. From the K through 12, I'd say the biggest obstacle is cost. Cost is the biggest obstacle and there are food by somebody we work with, one of the biggest group purchasing organization Everybody should have access to that so that they keep inflation low, cost low, and make it available. <coughs> Schools that participate in, in the school lunch and school breakfast program, the meals have to meet certain nutrition standards, and that may be a big difference between like a college dining service and a K to 12 school. Um, but schools get commodity foods through our USDA foods programs. And we're learning, we're learning a lot in this space, and so we're starting to increase the availability of halal foods and make sure those are labeled. Unfortunately, we haven't made a lot of progress in the proteins area yet, um, but, we're, but we're working on that to increase availability. Uh, with K-12, I have worked with Chicago Public School, like the headquarter with Chicago Public School. So I presented to them, and they was like, oh, now we're serving halal, but when I tell them, like, who are you certified with, they can't even prove it to me. They was like, okay, so that's the problem. Like, they're willing to work with it, but they're not willing to work with the third party that we want to be, like, trustworthy certified. I just wanted to add one more piece. Um, uh, within the community uh, that I work with, they actually uh, also have a, a food pantry set up. Um, and it's through the local masjid, and they're working with the Atlanta Community Food Bank. It's called Enough to Share. Um, and annually, uh, they do grants with Islamic Relief, right, to offer like halal certified turkeys. Um, and they do the first uh, and fifth Wednesday, or the first and fourth uh, Wednesday of the month. So it's kind of like, the it's open to the community, Muslim and non-Muslim. And you can come through and get fresh fruits and vegetable and you know halal certified turkeys and things like that um, but it's also I guess from a community perspective um, they're looking into specific grants they can write and you know community partners they can partner with so any other final questions we have just a couple minutes left anything else to share Hi, me again. <laughs> um, I'm also actually a, a clinical nutritionist, and this may be um, a little bit off of this topic, but since you're here, I just wanted to ask you, uh, this is great progress for halal certification. How far are we, or is are there any efforts in providing uh, grass-fed, organic, pasture-raised halal? certified.
So I want to thank all of you for a great discussion today and for, for participating. Um, I think all the panelists have, have made a few things clear that we need clear guidelines, we need education and training, we need community engagement, and then ongoing oversight. Um, so thank you to all of our panelists and also to Ifanka for coordinating this session and for all their work that they do to make sure that all children have access to the food they need to grow and, th and thrive. And thank you all for the work that you do um, also for that. Um, so we appreciate your input. It's really helpful to help us understand um, the actions we need to take to meet the cultural and religious needs of, of halal observant students. And collaborations like this are, are one step toward that effort. And we hope that you'll join us and take what you learned here today as you return to your work in your communities. So thank you so much for spending your time with us today. And we hope you enjoy the rest of the conference.
technology challenges. We are a small but mighty group this afternoon, so thank you for coming. We'll go ahead and get started. I'd like to welcome you to the rewards and challenges of startup projects promoting nutrition equity to mitigate health disparities of the black community in DC. This session is being sponsored by the Healthy Aging Division. Our speaker today is Dr. Tia Jeffrey. Tia is an assistant professor in the Department of Health, Nursing, and Nutrition at the University of the District of Columbia. She is a registered dietitian and a certified health education specialist as well. Her scholarship focuses on culturally tailored community-based interventions for chronic disease prevention and performance nutrition, integrative medical nutrition therapy, physical activity and aging, and nutritional strategies for sports performance and injury recovery. Today, Tia will share with us her work in DC. Good afternoon. Can everyone hear me? Okay, thank you. Thank you for joining. I know this is the tail end of uh, the whole conference, so appreciate you being here. And this is usually the time when I'm at conferences, I start to experience a little fatigue. So my appreciation that you joined me today. So I'm just going to talk a bit about um, some of preliminary work um, that we've been doing. And as far as culturally tailored nutrition education and exploration of perceptions in the black community. I'll use this instead. And these are some of our learning objectives. So I'm gonna discuss a bit about uh, the Black Wellness Matters series for older adults. Uh, and for objective two, talk a bit about the the focus group work we've done with um, intergenerational groups. One of those groups was older adults um, from some of the senior centers uh, sponsored by the DC Office on Aging, as well as uh, uh, one uh, parochial school uh, of youth um, to get those intergenerational perspectives. And then last but not least, just a snippet of some collaborative strategies for uh, one way of improving nutrition equity by uh, increasing the diversity of the nutrition and dietetics workforce through the inclusion, diversity, equity, and access uh, mini grant that the academy distributes to the different state affiliates and DPGs, MIGs every year. And just a little background and some of the constructs. So, you know, race in America, even though it's often used as a biological construct, it's also most, mostly a social construct uh, in the sense that a lot of geneticists and sociologists have found that um, cultural differences and uh, genetic 
variations are far more complex than um, race alone, but race is um, most useful in a social and political context, but in terms of measuring health status, it can be very limited all by itself um, because of the complexity of those other areas. And then there's also the issue with um, health inequities and how um, racism has affect, affects the health status of uh, different populations, including blacks and African-American groups, where uh, discrimination is linked to higher uh, physiological stress responses, even with um, some of these biological studies on like the immune response to stress and uh, higher incidence of chronic diseases. And that um, because it's systemic, it can manifest in different forms um, in different industries like corporate industry, other workplaces, law enforcement, um, healthcare, access to healthcare, and other variables. And then there's also, uh, we can talk about gaps in nutrition and health recommendations. So there's very strong established evidence of uh, the benefits of the Mediterranean diet and the benefits of the US DASH diet. And um, even though most, um, when immigrants come to the US, uh, they tend to, um, over time, uh, many studies show that as if they assimilate more into the standard American diet, then some of those um, health benefits tend to decline. And so that's some indication that uh, their traditional eating patterns were healthier but we just need a more established evidence and support and research to study those other cultural uh, dietary patterns as well, um, in addition to Mediterranean. And there is some work being done on that now with some culturally tailored, uh, what they call culturally tailored Mediterranean um, diets that um, they've tailored to some uh, populations like um, Latin American, for example. So it'd be interesting to see as that increases um, some of the uh, findings um, that come with that. And so one of the conceptual frameworks um, that helped drive this project um, for us was um, the melting pot versus salad bowl view, which is more commonly used in uh, the social political context, where a melting pot view we look at citizenship um, in terms of everyone assimilating into one dominant population and um, even though they all have their different differences but actually um, traditionally just going along with the traditions of the dominant population whereas the salable theory is uh, more inclusive in the sense that you're taking all these different um, traditions and cultures and instead of uh, tr trying to assimilate them into one particular dominant model, uh, they're, all, they're taking their individual unique patterns and including them in that, um, into that dominant culture and how this model is a multiculturalism model and um, the potential usefulness of going by the salad bowl theory as opposed to uh, one exclusive uh, dominant culture. And then there's also uh, critical race theory where 
uh, it's an anti-racism framework um, where scholars and the practice of law have developed on the premises that um, race is, uh, racism is systemic and um, so much that it's embed even embedded into U.S. Uh, laws um, and positioned in, in a way that can exploit uh, groups of predominantly uh, white privileged groups and um, not, I'm, I said that backwards, exploit the minority groups and um, put the other dominant group, uh, like for example, predominantly white groups in the U.S. in more of a position of privilege. And there's one um, study in particular where looked at uh, a systematic review of the Mediterranean diet and even though it has a strong foundation scientifically, it's uh, as a gold standard, um, it's also um, been challenged also in terms of um, all the subcategories of foods, are they mostly accepted by the white majority as opposed to um, the entire region? And so um, a few studies have took a more critical look at that as well. And lastly, what drove uh, my uh, development of this project was uh, looking at creative storytelling and the use of narrative storytelling and creative arts as a measure um, that could be motivating, inspiring, or show a sense of empowerment. And me, in particular, um, personally, outside of my scientific endeavors, uh, endeavors, I'm a lover of art and um, poetry and music and all those things. And so to embed it into interventions as a way to uh, inspire and entertain uh, is a one avenue that's in explored in some interventions as well. So it was an ancient African ritual um, where they use characters like animal characters to, uh, as uh, metaphors uh, to offer meaning in the context of the stories that were being told. And then also, um, if we go back in history uh, during the transatlantic slave trade where uh, African Americans were not able to read or not allowed to read by law, it was a, a way of, uh, storytelling was a way of preserving those identities. And so, um, so we use that approach um, for the Black Wellness Matters intervention. So I have a three-tiered approach here. So for nutrition equity and startup initiatives and um, mostly with the USDA seed grant and um, multi-state. And one was that culturally tailored intervention with a few uh, community-based uh, senior serving organizations. And again, the intergenerational focus groups and also uh, diversifying the workforce of nutrition professionals through um, the academy's IDEA uh, seed grant, um, mini grant. And so I had goals for all three. So the culturally tailored intervention that uh, used a process evaluation method as a preliminary, as part of our preliminary study to look at the feasibility and formative feedback of the storytelling themed um, curriculum. 
um, designed to increase plant-based food, food intake and promote disease prevention and management. And then the focus groups were looking at different, um, couple different models of healthy eating and the perceptions of uh, black adult seniors and black youth with the USDA model of healthy eating and then the old ways African heritage um, healthy eating models too. So we looked at those models and then also got their views on health versus culture and the represent, their representation um, that they see amongst themselves in the, the mainstream. And the goal of the last one, which is kind of still, definitely still in the works, a work in progress, is to increase the exposure of underrepresented groups to the nutrition and dietetics profession. And so just an overview of uh, the content of the Black Wellness Matters series. Uh, so the theme is uh, was a black heritage, nutrition, and health promotion through creative storytelling narratives and interactive virtual activities. Uh, so what we did was uh, we designed some, scenar some scenarios, storytelling scenarios for problem solving uh, and scenarios of who am I uh, and learn about um, a familiar food, it could be a familiar, uh, familiar fruit, vegetable, produce, and uh, they are familiar with it, but maybe not uh, familiar with all of the nutritional or health benefits of it. And so in a sort of a narrative um, storytelling uh, type of scenario, we got to um, discuss some of those things. And we pulled from publicly available um, drama skits, uh, songs, and poetry from YouTube videos and incorporated them into uh, these uh, series as well. And it also included a recipe demo at the end where uh, the recipe was, uh, could have been um, African food or uh, known African American uh, type of food or uh, Afro a popular food in the Afro Caribbean community. So, uh, so these are just um, you know a sample of uh, what we did. And um, a little information, sorry for the small print. On at least it looks small to me of my end. <laughs> so we look at the demographics, as you can see, we're hard pressed to get a lot of male participants in these uh, community nutrition related programs. So the limitation is, of course, is mostly, um, mostly female participants uh, from both the senior serving organizations. So one was uh, a nonprofit and Terrific Inc. and the other was uh, Congress Heights Senior, Senior Wellness Center right here in Washington, D.C. in the Southeast Anacostia region. And it's an example of uh, a sample of some of the learning activities we did. So it's a more, more interactive. Um, unfortunately, 
I tried testing uh, the video of the poetry excerpt and I was not able to, we weren't able to get it to play, uh, but uh, I can always share the YouTube link with you guys later because I really enjoyed this piece. It was uh, by Janelle Robinson and um, she's a, happens to, she's a poet and a professor in health education and nutrition at the, I believe it was the University of Florida, if I'm not mistaken. So I'll try to see if it works, but if not, I can always give you the link. But it was a TED Talk, so if you're going to go back and you know listen to it, it was a TED Talk. And another example of some of the activities. Um, so. This was uh, one of the models we used, uh, African Heritage Diet Pyramid and uh, African Heritage Power Plate, um, sponsored by, by Old Waves, um, heritage eating models, and uh, I think with the, the plate, the Physicians Committee for Responsible um, Medicine helped design um, the plate version of it too. Um, but as you can see, it's very colorful. Uh, it includes also the physical activity component, um, drinking water, um, heavier emphasis on um, leafy green vegetables, and then other uh, produce and grains and proteins that were most commonly consumed as part of uh, African heritage diet and even um, African and foods that African Americans and Africans um, all in general tend to consume more of, like for example, grains. Um, example of that. Has anyone seen this model before? Okay. So it's our, that model is on oldwastept.org and it also includes other models like Asian heritage, Latin American heritage, vegetarian and vegan, uh, Mediterranean. Um, models too. And I'm going to do a guess with you all. This is one of our activities in the project. Is um, I am a leafy force to be reckoned with. I am light enough to be low in calories before any fat is added, but rich in calcium and strong enough to ward off illnesses and help prevent cancer and heart disease. I'm prepared all kinds of ways. I can be boiled, braised, steamed, or eaten raw. Anyone want to try? Collards. <laughs> Let's see. Yes. <laughs> and uh, the next example of a demonstration was um, watch out. I'm a sweet truth stream. I'm high in vitamin A. I am a smooth dessert from a tuber plant and very popular among African Americans during fall and early winter. I am often spiced up with cinnamon and nutmeg. Some eat me with vanilla ice cream or whipped cream. Others like me solo. But here's the clincher. I'm only meant for special occasions. If you eat too many helpings in one sitting or eat me too often, you might gain too much weight or go into a diabetic coma. 
And there we go, sweet potato pie. <laughs> and then other um, activities, for example, were uh, problem-solving scenarios. Uh, like, for example, we have a rolling with diabetes scenario uh, with uh, a Karen who is a type 2 diabetic. And um, the picture is not really Karen. It's just a <laughs> version. And um, she's always on the run, having trouble managing her blood sugars, dizzy, just grab and go snacks, drink Starbucks during the day, waits till she gets home to eat a large meal and eats very late at night. And, um, and asking them that question and as a group, uh, what steps can she take to help manage her blood sugar? And um, so it's interesting to get uh, some of the responses we get and, 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 uh, and then in hearing the responses, if I hear them, uh, if any of them were similar to some of the solutions that were listed when they go into the um, next page or the next slide. And so um, what I found was that when they started talking about it, um, that often what they did end up stating some of a lot of the things that were on this list. Like I said, oh, well, you know, she can um, try to, you know, eat a, eat a breakfast uh, in the morning, and so maybe that she wouldn't um, be so tempted to eat more late at night. Um, and then some other examples was eating a meal um, during the waking hours, not going more than four or five hours um, in between meals, and um, trying intermittent fasting from the time you go to bed till the time you wake up, keeping a food journal, and watching out for high sugar sweetened um, beverages, and some and in other examples besides that. And so those are kind of, uh, you know, part of learning tools that considered more inclusive with involving them in some of those um, problem-solving strategies. And um, one uh, more sample is uh, the, sweet, uh, the sweet bar scenario. Uh, so Sarah invited to uh, all-you-can-eat dessert party. And in the afternoon, like, what can she do, like, to enjoy herself when she gets there without overindulging in all the sweets? Like, giving them these really potential real-life scenarios, because oftentimes when people uh, try to make changes, uh, they kind of don't plan for, you know, scenarios like this. And so, um, so they looked at that and said, oh, you're making it harder. <laughs> Um, and um, so it was interesting and hearing the, you know, the take on, you know, what they would do uh, if they had to uh, navigate through that. And um, so some of what they uh, was already on the list and some things that they came up with was um, maybe eating before you get into the event. So you, don't come too hungry. Um, exercise in the morning um, and try, instead of taking very large helping of uh, something, then maybe a small helping of different sweets so you don't feel like they overdid it. And also to understand it's just an occasion and um, try not to make feel 
the, the guilt that comes along with it where the people tend to give up and then feel like, well, they've already lost control. So just embrace it as an occasion and let go of the guilt. And so um, we liked that. And another example is, um, you know, in different songs, just like there's different excerpts of poetry that they were able to hear and read. And so uh, this was, a, this is a music video. Um, it's also, if you YouTube it, um, and let's talk about salt, you'll see it's, um, it, it's, a, it's a take off of a salt and pepper song, let's talk about sex, and it sounds exactly the same. And it's actually salt who's doing the song too. So <laughs> I so wish I could play it, but the, the, the video for it's not working right now. But it's a, publicly available to listen to. And it was um, a public health PSA um, as well. And then they have other songs there. Some uh, were done by, I think, um, Dougie Fresh did one and some other artists. <laughs> and I think the next one, okay, so, uh, as part of our process evaluation, uh, both our preliminary responses to this model of nutrition education. So for the overall, for the most part, uh, it was very uh, positive, very positive feedback as far as how um, useful they felt the series was, um, if the educational information, if they felt it was clear if they would change anything about the series, if they're satisfied with the overall series, and if they enjoyed the videos uh, and stories and uh, performances. And then it also included um, a video of a uh, drama skit performance too that was performed by a um, church, um, as a, it was a prominently black church and they put, and they had some kind of wellness week and so they put on this big skit and, um, and so that was fun to listen to also. And I can also share that link with you guys if you want to listen to that. And then so based on, and so these were uh, linkered scale process evaluation questions in addition to uh, some of these, if, um, how well they enjoyed um, some of the games, if the series motivated them to eat healthy, and then the items about, um, again, the useful tools, and if you would prefer uh, this type of education over um, a formal lecture. And so mostly all between 90 and 100% of the respondents um, said um, agreed, um, strongly agreed, agreed. And a uh, little bit of qualitative feedback. Um, I'm gonna read all, every single one, but most of respondents really enjoyed uh, the historical information, uh, the educational information, um, the, um, the engagement and fellowship that all of them had. Originally, uh, this was started out as uh, we were gonna do it in person, but uh, as we know, the pan after the pandemic happened, we kinda had to transition into doing a lot of things virtual only. So the first time we did it, uh, it was all, all virtual Zoom. And then the second time around, as people were getting back into uh, being in person again, and we did like a hybrid format where um, some of them intended in-center and then you had others who uh, attended virtually. So depending on how comfortable they were with um, coming out or, or just um, joining via 
uh, the Zoom platform. And um, they liked um, in the recipe some of the um, seasoning alternatives as well uh, with a lot of, of the traditional foods uh, that they enjoyed. So I think they liked that part the most, the, the, the food demo and <laughs> the recipes. And then uh, in terms of uh, process uh, suggestions for improvement, uh, you know, one thing about uh, Wi-Fi access, of course, is making sure that, um, you know, getting an idea of what kind of platform for delivering uh, surveys or getting feedback is best for this population. So these were older adults. Um, it's interesting because at first I thought, we thought, well, you know, most of them are going to just um, want to do paper. They're not going to want to do online. And that was the case for some of them. But there are also many who were uh, learning um, how to use a lot of virtual tools and during the whole uh, course of the pandemic and had become accustomed to it. And so some of them actually didn't mind um, doing the surveys online. So we have a bit of mixed response where some say it was, it was easy, I preferred that version, and others were like, well, I don't, I prefer to do the surveys and stuff in, per, in person. So when we needed more feedback, you know, what we ended up doing was kind of going back and giving the paper version of the surveys to um, some of the attendees. So, um, so it was good at lesson learned to um, find out, you know, from the audience, um, regardless of age, but especially, you know, the senior population, which mode um, was work, would work best when trying to work with um, any technical difficulty. Because we had um, ran into technical difficulty with one of the um, uh, connection or connection issues with one of the centers, and which can be the case oftentimes um, in, I would say, uh, underserved urban setting or a rural setting, where it may be issues with uh, Wi-Fi connection. And so that's something that in moving forward uh, with any um, further funding, uh, whether it's a seed grant or bigger money, that we kind of uh, plan for um, that IT aspect of, um, of the program delivery, because it definitely can and will affect um, how well um, it's delivered and how well it's received, um, that whole connection, especially if some are experiencing connection issues and others are not. It's easier to gauge, um, you know, effectiveness when everybody is um, experiencing pretty much the same level of access, um, especially in terms of technology. And uh, this phase um, was our intergenerational focus groups. And so we had to get perspective, I got perspectives with, um, so far, um, six focus groups, uh, three senior um, focus groups, and um, three youth focus groups. And so overall, it was about uh, 45 participants um, in, this, in this sample. And um, comparing um, some of the similarities and variances in their um, outlook and perceptions on attitudes about um, these uh, healthy eating guides. 
It's very interesting to me. Uh, so the school, one of the schools, um, at least with the youth, was a, in a DC, Hyattsville, Maryland. So if anyone's familiar with Hyattsville, Maryland or not, it's in the DC, it's about just minutes away from DC. So, so very close. And then of course, you know, some of the, uh, the research protocol aspect, you know, informed, informed consent, um, transcriptions of the uh, interviews, uh, data cleaning, we used um, grounded theory um, with the, the content and coding and uh, member checks thus far. And so the questions revolved around health, culture, U.S. dietary guidelines, and alternative models of nutrition education, and which uh, models resonated with them most as they were look, looking at um, the content in these models. And um, so some, I'll just you know talk about um, some uh, the information of that valuable input and information that we learned from the moderating uh, these focus groups. So uh, food staples and preferences, um, these are some that the, what I did was a kind of looked at themes that were distinct with uh, the older adults versus the youth and then those that work, uh, that overlapped. Uh, that were pretty similar between both groups. And man, many of them, um, for example, the older adults, we had preferences for um, berries, bananas, uh, more so, or youth, their preferences uh, were oranges, um, peaches, plums, different kinds of vegetables with both preferred, uh, for example, fish and chicken as their source of protein, rice and peas, mac and cheese, potato salad, for example, and grains, and then across the board, uh, mangoes, strawberries, grapes, watermelon were, um, were popular fruit preferences. And as far as favorite occasions for feasting, uh, what they both, uh, what was popular among both, which is popular among many other cultures as well, were the top three, were Thanksgiving, Christmas, and birthdays. And with older adults, uh, they also, uh, many had uh, communicated that uh, cookouts or picnics uh, was a favorite or family reunions uh, was a favorite. And youth, it was interesting because they, uh, they said, well, during the school day, their favorite time of day was lunchtime. So many of them said, lunchtime is on my favorite <laughs> occasions for feasting. It's like, yeah, the occasion there when you don't have to um, do schoolwork and study, that's your favorite time to <laughs> eat. And views on health, um, what was distinct between older adults and youth uh, was with uh, older adults, they talk uh, they more about, um, you know, being more cognizant of, well, I have this particular medical condition or disease now, so my motivation uh, was more um, connected to uh, wanting to live a longer life or, um, 
or they many grew up with the parents or grandparents who uh, their main source of food if they um, did not live in urban areas was everything they grew. Um, going to the store wasn't something that um, they were used to until they uh, got over, older or moved. And so anything they grew from the ground, there's, for example, something considered healthy. And, or it was whatever we had in front of us. Uh, whatever my mom or grandmother gave me and I had to eat the plate and I couldn't get up until I was done. And that was what I considered, um, you know, part of health. <laughs> so you could not leave, it's like that reminded me of my grandmother. We could not leave the table. <laughs> And, um, and for uh, youth, uh, the focus was their uh, views were more so about, um, you know, the here and now. Uh, what's uh, making me healthy and strong right now? Or if I um, play in a sport and I'm feeling like I'm going to faint, then I know that, um, you know, that eating enough of certain foods is good for me. Um, and so, but they both shared um, balance, um, eating plenty of fruits and vegetables, portion control, and avoiding fast food or fried foods was uh, common responses among all of the all of the groups. And I miss a quote here. Oh yeah, so there's an older adult in format talking about at certain ages we get these diseases. Um, and then a youth discussing if I feel a certain way. Um, so in terms of culture, um, some of the uh, preliminary themes was different nationalities coming together among older adults, among youth, talking about, um, well, culture could be you know, language I speak, uh, what I believe in or stand for, how, I, how we dress, um, groups that share common traditions and uh, both shared um, a lifestyle um, that originated from your family, uh, the types of food we all eat, some of our shared beliefs and um, customs based on where we're from. And uh, which brings me to my um, next slide about some of the common cultural influences on food choices among all of the groups. and. The most influential factors that stood out, that influenced, uh, that they reported, that influenced the decisions um, that they made about their food choices, um, was a religious background, the regional residence, their health or disease status, ethnicity, and um, family traditions, uh, and and which made me think about even um, what came out with the the Pew Research Center about um, the black and black community, blacks, African Americans, in terms of uh, religious uh, values uh, in comparison to other sub racial ethnic subpopulations that actually they reported that being, uh, being the most religious of all the other uh, racial ethnic groups. Um, now, there's been some of decline in that with the younger adults um, of black and African-American groups, but for the most part, uh, so which was interesting um, with parallels with even what came out with some of these focus groups. Like, for example, um, one uh, older adult 
uh, responded that um, she, um, it was something about I was raised um, Catholic, and um, so we eat fish on Fridays and, and chicken every Sunday. Um, so that was our part of my religious tradition. Another one was uh, Seventh-day Adventist, so my, um, you know, we don't eat uh, pork or the shellfish, and so that was uh, influential. And then uh, regardless of uh, the racial ethnic background, it was the regional residents really uh, came out to, like some who said, uh, well, based on, you know, where I'm from, I'm from New York, for example, so we didn't really um, have the opportunity to have all these fresh gardens and um, to eat our food from. I mean, I knew that apple was when I went to the store and bought the apple. When I went to my grandparents' house in North Carolina and saw them picking apples off the ground or the tree, she said, that was startling to me. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's where apples come from. <laughs> Not the store. Um, and then uh, ethnicity, uh, just the diversity of uh, of the black population stood out in these interviews too, uh, like uh, individuals who say, well, uh, my parents are from um, Grenada or, uh, or Jamaica or somewhere else in the Caribbean or if they're African American and some of the things that really stood out, like for example, a youth respondent, uh, say on my mother's side, I'm Grenadian, so I eat mostly those foods you have to eat breadfruit, yucca, cassava, uh, ackee, saltfish, and those stuff came out. So um, ethnic background was a huge um, uh, indicator too. And um, health status, like, well, diabetes, diabetes or have high blood pressure. And so um, I, you know, had to make adjustments or trying to make adjustments for those reasons. And so, and then the family traditions people grew, uh, grew up with, uh, again, was another factor. And in terms of the, my uh, plate guides, um, so the USD, these were views on the USDA my plate. And so um, some things that came up uh, with the older adults was uh, lack of trust, uh, like, are they being forthcoming about the nutrition information? Um, is a history of uh, racism on assumptions of what's good for people of color? They really liked um, the Michelle Obama's um, initiative with Let's Move and thought that helped with those um, healthy eating campaigns. They loved the grocery shopping tips of the USDA MyPlate and the recommendations on label reading. And um, some other things that came out with the youth um, were a disagreement with fruits and vegetables at the same time on the plate. It's like, uh, well, I don't eat fruits and vegetables with dinner. I eat either vegetables with dinner or I fruit with breakfast or fruit as a snack, um, but not on all on the same plate. And um, so it was um, some positives, but the least preferred healthy eating model compared to the um, other uh, model that I'll get into. And many of them consistent across the board with both was dairy around the plate model wasn't consistent with the way they eat culturally. Um, 
in context in particular with when it comes to drinking milk um, versus, um, you know, when it came to other dairy products like cheese, uh, that was more common, but milk drinking was not something that they typically uh, did, um, I guess, habitually. And so they preferred information on also non-dairy sources of calcium as well. And then the views on the old ways pyramid uh, was appreciation for the healthy eating component with the older adults. Um, one out of all the clients said it was too much variety in the African heritage plate, but everyone else loved the variety in the African American heritage plate. And, um, and they all um, liked the emphasis on um, spices, especially those uh, with high blood pressure, you know, wanting alternatives to make the eat food taste good. And it, they, they aligned with their cultural preference. They loved the greens had its own category on the plate and the emphasis on um, the more the proteins they most commonly ate like fish, chicken and beans. And the barriers to healthy uh, versus solutions to healthy eating, um, barriers like low limited income, affordability, accessibility, or literacy with reading food labels versus solutions like having more community gardens and affordable options and knowledge about food alternatives um, with similar nutritional value. And when it came to uh, representation on health and wellness media, um, so many of them, if they thought, was, are we adequately represented in the health and wellness media platforms? So the majority said no. Um, they said, well, advertisements I see mostly with overweight black women or billboards had, you know, alcohol advertisements or, or um, them endorsing foods that were high in fat and salt and sugar as opposed to healthier foods or um, fat or more commonly endorsing fast food chains unless it was uh, from time to time the youth would uh, more opt to say well they may see like their black athletes endorsing certain products and that would be the only time um, but or stereotypical endorsement of uh, stereotypical soul food as opposed to other types of um, food or representation in the wellness market. Um, and <laughs> some said, uh, if I saw one, it was a black woman with straight hair doing fitness routines or a blonde-haired, uh, blue-eyed uh, white woman doing yoga. And it's what the youth <laughs> would say. Um, and they all um, unanimously express a lack of representation and would feel more motivated and connected to um, information that included more uh, representation with their race. And so um, some key takeaways was um, holidays and special occasions were important to incorporate in terms of bridging food with social and fellowship. Um, early upbringing influenced long-term eating patterns they had more favorable affinity toward the African Heritage Eating Guide, and um, older adults decided more uh, some of the barriers and solutions like affordability, um, food label literacy, and the ethnic and heterogeneity and regional heterogeneity of the respondents um, stood out as well. Um, 
and then wanting more positive reputation in the health and wellness space of, of their culture. And um, lastly, this is a snippet of the overall demographics. Uh, some of us in here who are registered dietitians are probably familiar with this pie chart. <laughs> so um, the representation in the green is um, of, of white dietitians, which is uh, white female, 80% white female, 3% male, and then the other minority groups like black and African Americans, 3%, and the 5% Hispanic, and um, Asian, around 5% too. So um, the goal of this initiative is to, you know, increase the diversity of underrepresented groups into the profession um, that would encourage also more um, focus on equity, more equity in these communities when it comes to nutrition and wellness information. And so the overview of what we're doing is um, going to be a, a webinar series of, on behalf of the Maryland Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Um, so some of the goals include diversifying the profession, exposing um, high school and college students to the field, and increase, increase the knowledge and understanding of global and cultural food competence, and um, yeah, just in exposure. Um, and this is the format we're going to uh, follow uh, with the webinar, and that will become uh, a video that will be on uh, the YouTube page after the webinar series has finished, and that will be. Um, Health Through Heritage presentation by, um, so we're going to go by the four racial ethnic um, interest group, member interest groups of the uh, academy. And so there's going to be uh, Latin, um, African American, uh, Asian, and uh, focused, I might be missing one, of these uh, webinar series uh, that will include um, student and RD testimonials, a few of those testimonies, health through heritage presentation, or they'll see um, some of the contributions of the racial ethnic group to the profession, whether it's been in the space of food policy or agriculture, and then um, inspirational closing remarks in the post-webinar mentoring sessions. Um, and overall, um, some in limitations and challenges include, um, uh, so for one, it's helpful to have existing organizational relationships when going upon, coming upon these projects, because that's been help, really helpful for us, uh, especially linking with some of the organizations we currently have a relationship with in cooperative extension. Um, the connection issues I mentioned with some of the virtual platform and of course, it's limited to a small cohort in the Washington, D.C. area, which is actually um, a pro and a con, because um, it's underrepresented, so it's a pro that we have this represented, but it's limited in terms of content to that population with, with this small cohort. And then the recruitment for the profession um, aspect of it with the, will involve more buy-in with some of the high schools and colleges. Um, so that, so that would be something to work on. And then some implications for policy. Um, so like for example, the MyPlate model is a great foundational blueprint, but when uh, we're working with specific subpopulations that we just make sure we're tailoring um, those, 
using also the tailored models of that MyPlate, which are also available, like whether it's Tuck University's um, MyPlate for older adults or some of the old ways models, and um, there's a My Athletes plate as well. Um, and then um, we use the digital arts and just expanding um, the initiative and in progress and publications and my acknowledgments to other members of the team. And um, oops, and now Uh, thank you. Thank you, Tia. I was taking notes about what we can do in Iowa. Um, we have about five minutes for questions. There's a microphone in the center of the room if you'll come up and ask any questions of uh, Tia. Thank you, Tia. Uh, what a really great presentation. My name is Pam Cook, and I'm from Teachers College, Columbia University, and I actually have lots of questions, but the one I want to focus on, I don't know how many people were just in the USDA session right before this that was talking about my plate all the time, and I, as a registered dietitian, have a, a lot of, of thoughts about my plate, <laughs> hesitations maybe. Um, and your data, I think, adds, you presented, adds to that. And so, you know, how do we reconcile that? Because it's, it's a mm -hmm. big push, but yet it mm -hmm. does have a lot of challenges and doesn't feel like it resonates with many people for mm -hmm. many, many different reasons, including the population that you talk to, both the mm -hmm. youth and the adults. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, so. I'd rather take some of the, the positives of, of uh, the MyPlate that's there, but then, okay, now with this MyPlate, so it doesn't resonate with everyone, so how can we, um, because it's like a fine line, because, you know, USDA, okay, we support and find a lot of our, our work, right? So um, I would say, at least from my perspective, is, okay, let's um, promote different variations of it, different variations of my plate. Like we can say, oh, these other models are um, like saying a cultural ta culturally tailored take off of uh, my plate. And how do we go with, for example, that dairy component in my plate, it just doesn't resonate with a lot, everybody. So, um, a model, a model, okay, so what it looks, what does that look like? What is that going to look like? Um, can we start promoting um, other alternatives to dairy? Um, or, you know, is the goal to put, because the thing is, the conflict is there's a goal to push it, and then there's a desire for a lot of populations to, you know, hey, I'm, I'm kind of leaning more um, plant forward. So, what we do with that is, um, I would just say, try to be inclusive with everybody based on you know what their uh, preferences are, and then just acknowledging that, um, just like the way we would treat it with someone who had uh, food allergies, we should do the same thing um, with it, you know, with this model too. Um, does that help answer? No, no, no. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it was mm-hmm. that would be more representative, really. And I mean, that you're not just saying, "Oh, it's just this one particular diet," but hey, these are the foods that we can pull from every culture that are just as healthy. And at the end of the day, it's about the eating patterns, um, not just like, "Oh, it's this particular food or that particular food." Like, what's the overall eating pattern look like? So thank you for your question. It looks like we have four minutes left. Um, I have another question. So um, I was also wondering, like, um, would it be relevant uh, to also see their uh, receptiveness to food from other cultures? Like, mm-hmm. like for example, Indian, Indian food or, like, uh, Turkish food, American food, how, how do these respondents respond to that kind of food? How, mm-hmm. What is their preferred food? Did you get any insight? Um, oh, from the groups that yes. we talked to? Oh, um, yeah, you know what? Many of them, some of them said, uh, I would say with youth and older adults, was um, they felt like there was more variety than they used to be. Like some days I feel like... Um, Italian food. Other days, I feel like eating what I, um, I'm normally uh, accustomed to eating, or I want to eat, you know, my traditional food. So it was what? Um, no, they didn't mention Turkish food in particular, um, but there was a receptive. There was a um, affinity. There was definitely affinity for other cultural foods, like um, they really. Um, you know, this group, they said something, they would say things like um, bland foods, like I don't want to eat the bland foods. I, <laughs> I like, my, I want my spices, I want my flavor and all that, which tend to be with, um, you know, a lot of the foods that you mentioned about they preferred. And uh, another thing I noticed in the, in the table of uh, preferred foods or the, the kinds of foods people like, mm-hmm. I didn't see hamburgers, I didn't see steak. <laughs> I'm really curious about that because yeah. most of my students, mm-hmm. like, uh, we did a, a food tasting study. Yeah. So we showed them plant-based food, chicken and all that. Mm-hmm. The comments we got were like, this is weird. This is uh, mm-hmm. not tasty. This is, then mm-hmm. somebody said, give me some real food. So mm. they wanted uh, hamburgers and they wanted steak uh, yeah. as part of the food. Yeah. Th- Especially the cafeteria. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this were, well, with the youth, it was with one school, and I would say with them, they, they said that I eat a lot of sweets. I eat too many sweets. And so theirs was, um, in terms of, like, their preferences, I had, um, I just put this in a chart, I kind of just put the sweets in one category, but many of them were saying that, oh, if I could change this plate, I would put more, I would put a bigger, uh, add more, uh, a bigger section to allow more sweets because that's the way I really eat. <laughs> but um, but what's interesting with the proteins, um, many of them said like fish and chicken, and um, even um, the older adults. Now, like the private school, if I were to get a stronger demographic of youth from other schools, you know, it may come out differently um, than this group, but with even with the older adults, many of them preferences with um, 
was, yeah, Pro in terms of protein, was fish and chicken. our time today, but I'm sure Dr. Jeffries will be happy to ask any questions um, after. I want to thank all of you again for coming on Sunday afternoon to attend this session and um, coming from a state where DEI and uh, work that's focused on underrepresented groups is um, not allowed. You gave me a lot of tips to think about in applying in a way that will be culturally appropriate and sensitive and not raise any red flags. So thank you to you. <laughs>